101 is a slum term for the most basic knowledge in some subject. 101, like our podcast. This is Venezuela 101. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Venezuela 101. I am Miguel Pizarro. And I am Melanio Escobar. In this podcast, we will interview different experts to discuss the main aspects of the political, economical, and social situation in Venezuela with intention of having a broader and deeper understanding of the crisis that our country is going through. Before today's topic and our guest, we want to remind you that if this is your first time listening to this podcast, you can find our previous episodes and the trailer through this same platform where you will learn the main subject we address in this podcast and what drive us to create and maintain this space. Today, we will talk about the health situation in Venezuela, a topic that has made the national and international headlines for several years now. In this episode, I'm pleased to introduce our guest, Dr. Julio Castro. Julio is an internal medicine and infectious disease specialist. He's a professor at the Institute of Tropical Medicine and the Central University of Venezuela and a member of the Network of Médicos por la Salud. He has also been a health advisor for the National Assembly of Venezuela since 2015. Welcome, Julio. Hi, Milanio and Miguel. It's a, I'm flattered for your invitation and I'll be glad to be here. I, I, I will rather to do that in Spanish or this in Spanish, but I mean, uh, it's also awesome to, to have a broader auditorium in terms of English language for uh, persons around the world that are very concerned about the situation in Venezuela. Julio, thank you for joining us and to share some context for our listeners. I would like to start by asking you to speak about some memories that illustrate and describes the magnitude of the health emergency that Venezuela is currently facing. Well, uh, related to, to your first question, well, I have a recent episode of that that maybe enlightened what's the situation for the health crisis in Venezuela. We have been in the outpatient clinic in the Instituto de Medicina Tropical, Tropical Medicine Institute for the last, I have been there for the last uh, 15 years. And we received recently in the last month of 2022, a very high, a very high uh, military personnel in our consul. He, he was deployed to Amazonas state and he, he get the disease over there. He passed over, uh, he, he go through some of the medical personnel in the military uh, arm, nobody do the diagnosis. And finally we did the diagnosis for him. He has extensive lesion of uh, leishmaniasis in her in his scalp and in his uh, arms and we did the diagnosis for him it is leishmaniasis is a parasitic disease a tropical disease is it, better known as leishmaniasis americana or cutaneous leishmaniasis uh, and what well, we did the diagnosis the, and the first light treatment for that uh, disease is a um, glucantime, it's an antimonial drug that we use uh, by injection. You need to get an intramuscular injection for one month. And we have not written for leishmaniasis in Venezuela right now. We have none, nothing, no, not, not even a single uh, vial for that, for, to treat that, that disease. We tell that to the military, he, actually he's a general, and he 
tried to find the drug in Venezuela. He couldn't. And the only way uh, for him to resist the treatment uh, was to call some friends in Brazil and some friends in Colombia. And they, some relatives, send the drug for him using a courier to Venezuela. Well, he gets the treatment, he gets better. Actually, uh, he is in very well shape. He is now on his duty right now. But we talk to him about it. We, we tell him that if you, if he can imagine, uh, he being him, being him like uh, being a general, uh, how difficult it was to find the treatment. If he can imagine a person who is a poor or is in the in the the south part of the country or even in, in Caracas and live it in a in a, in a poor neighborhood, how difficult it is for a person like this to find that treatment? Even they can they can pay for it. I mean, the the military has to pay for the treatment. It costs like eight hundred dollars, which in Venezuela is a big amount of money. So this this, this uh, history can uh, can figure out to our audience how difficult is the situation in Venezuela, even for persons who are uh, very related with the government, like a military guy, is difficult to find a treatment. Actually, we are, we are, we are trying to do some uh, lobby with international organization, trying to find a treatment for leishmaniasis and other tropical diseases like tuberculosis, a dengue, and other tropical diseases, which are very frequent in our in daily basis. Over the past 10 years, we have seen the health situation in Venezuela deteriorate. The state of hospitals, the scarcity of supplies, the working conditions of the personnel, and we understand that all of this is part of a complex humanitarian emergency that the country is going through. But in your opinion, when all of this emergency began, what was the trigger of, of all this situation? Related to your second question, I mean, it's difficult for us to go back in, in time and trying to figure out when the crisis began. I mean, when I was a medical student uh, in the 90s, uh, we had, we used to have strikes in the hospital because we don't have all the drugs and all the facilities that we, we think we should uh, give to the patients, even in the 90s. But it's nothing related with, with today's situation. I'm gonna give you some examples. We are doing the National uh, Health Survey, which is a initiative for from one of my one of my groups that are working as an NGO in Venezuela. It's a doctor's NGO, and we monitor uh, different uh, indicators in the hospital life. For example, in Venezuela right now, 60% of the hospital do not have running water. They just get the water using uh, tanks or, or use or people have to buy the water by themselves and bring it to the hospital is 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 very complicated to imagine how can a patient can can live inside the hospital without running water and and it's also the same for electricity or power we have had a very um, power shutdowns 
the bigger one lasts for 10 days in the whole country, which includes hospital, and a lot of people die in that uh, power blackouts. Uh, that's the kind of situation that we never, we never saw uh, before in, in the last years or the 90s in the 20th century, but it's very often right now. The structural or the basics uh, in the hospital, we don't have it right now. We have to uh, provide by ourselves. I mean, in terms of the patient, they have to bring medicine, they have to bring water, they have to bring uh, catheters, they have to bring almost everything uh, in order to be admitted or to be uh, attended at the hospitals. If, if you have a, yeah, I have to say when that begins, maybe after 2012, the situation uh, is getting worse every year. In the maybe 2012 was the last year uh, in which we have some some kind of access to regular medicine. After that, the government decide do not import more medicines. So the crisis for the medicines in Venezuela begins to getting worse in the end of 2012. And from now on, until now, the situation is getting worse every year. So I think that many people, even academic guys, ask about the impact of uh, economic sanctions from the European Union or the US uh, related to the humanitarian situation. And if you go back, you can check that the indicators get worse in terms of maternal mortality, children mortality, drug access, tuberculosis treatment, HIV prevalence uh, are getting worse very early or much before, long before the uh, sanctions um, get done. So I think that maybe the last 10 years have been the worst of the health uh, crisis in Venezuela. Now, the Network of Médicos por la Salud, of which you are part of, has conducted several editions of the National Hospital Survey. This study has become a key indicator for obtaining data on the reality of the country's health system. But before we go deeper into the latest data, could you tell us how this idea came about? Since when is this study being conducted and where does the data come from? And what areas does it cover? Well, Melanio, we have an interest, interest in history related to the National Hospital Survey. Uh, in 2013, when, the, when we have strikes in the streets in Venezuela, a bunch of medical students organized themselves for attend the patients on the streets. Um, most of the organization uh, was on a structure at that moment, and they uh, finally do some role list or take the data from the streets of the person who, who were injured in the strikes in the in the streets and have a kind of a list, everyday list, uh, trying to deliver to the relative of that, uh, that patient where they were sent it, in which hospital they were, what kind of lesion do they have in the streets, and they 
create a Twitter account and in the Twitter account, they write down that information. That information was very useful for relative or even for fathers, parents, or other relatives to know where they, the relative were, were sent. In some cases, some of the patients were sent for jail or for uh, another kind of uh, government uh, reclusion site when nobody has access to them. So that information was very useful for uh, to organize or to know where the patients were at that moment. When I saw that, as a teacher of the university, those students, I, I, I reached them, I contacted them. So we have a meeting and I say, well, we, you have a network, a national network for information, which is very useful for us, but we have to move on to try to, to pick up information in the hospital where they, uh, when they were medical students, they, they doing the internship or so, and uh, we have to structure that information for the community to know. So we, we structure a network of medical students and we did, uh, first we did a digital uh, survey. Uh, they were very, ex they have a huge expertise uh, managing with the uh, cellular phones and we create that network using the cellular phone and we uh, we get the first national survey when we got information, very useful information about hospital number of beds, kind of uh, diseases they have it over there, what a kind of uh, street visors were there, uh, what kind of lesion do they have it, and we begin to organize the information. After that, we move on to have a more structured a survey when we get information about uh, medicines, we get information about basic stuff in the hospital like running water or power, we get information about elevators, about operating rooms, about um, personals, number of nurses, number of doctors in the emergency room, and uh, the information that we have right now is the evolution of that first survey but now we take the information every week for a regular national uh, survey and every day for the COVID-19 uh, survey. We, we, we take information for number of patients with respiratory symptoms, number of patients with PCR positive, number of patients without PCR positive but clinical diagnosis of COVID-19, number of ventilators used, number of ventilators which are uh, operable in the emergency room or the ICU units. So we have all that information that is uh, very informative about the situation in the hospital. So that's uh, actually, we have a blockade of information for, uh, for um, any health uh, indicator in Venezuela uh, from, 2015, uh, we don't have any information. We don't have epidemiology data. We don't have a national um, survey data related to the census or the epidemiology information. Now, uh, the national hospital survey is pretty much the only information, structural information that we have about the health system in Venezuela.
we haven't get information uh, for ambulatory or primary care we are now now, now trying to move to that uh, to that area because it's very difficult for us to get into the primary care units because most of the hospital have medical uh, doctors or have a medical student which are related with our network. So uh, actually we are trying to move to another uh, to another fields like the ambulatory or primary care. But now we're still uh, doing a very uh, very complex efforts to keep our national survey running because uh, it's it takes a lot of work it takes a lot of organization it takes in sometimes some money to uh, deliver the information related to the national hospital survey but we are very proud of the information that we are generating in the last years and we are hoping that we can keep that uh, kind of information for for many more years until we have uh, reliable data from the national government that we don't have right now. We had the chance to read the latest report from 2022. That report was published a few weeks ago, and we were alarmed by the figures regarding the public services in hospitals. Could you share that data? And can you explain to us how a health facility can function without basic services such as electricity and water? How does this impact the patients? How does it affect the work of the health personnel in all the health facilities? Well, Miguel, related to, to your question, actually we we deliver or we, we send the, the last bulletin, which is the resume for the 2022. Uh, related to the National Hospital Survey. And I mean, the data over there is very striking. I mean, it's, it's striking because there is the feeling in Venezuela that the macroeconomical uh, indicators are getting better. And it's, I mean, it's, a, it's a, a common comment in Venezuela, but when you go to the hospital, the situation is not that good. Absolutely not that good. I mean, still, the basic problem like the running water or the electricity power as i say before and i have a, i have a history related to that sometime when we were in in one of the merida hospital we went to the hospital and we asked to the patient we, we checked the data uh, in the field i mean and we, we we are asking we were asking to the patients how they can manage to be admitted without running water. And they say, well, every other day or every every two days, we we hear like a ring belt. Uh, somebody uh, ring the belt and that's the sign, uh, that's the sign for the patient that the cisterna in Venezuela, cisterna is a water tank, a motor water tank uh, is, in the, is in the lobby of the hospital. So the patients, uh, go back, go to the lobby with their with the cans to get the water from the cisterna, and well, they go they they after that they go to the bed. That's the the kind of service of water service that we have in most or or hospitals. I mean, I, I'm talking to you about Merida, but Hospital Universitario de Caracas, which which is maybe the second biggest hospital in Venezuela, has the same situation for years. 
I mean, an hospital universitario is like a two kilometers from Miraflores. So can you imagine if you have that situation in hospital universitario, how can you expect from the hospital in Amazonas or in Bolivar or in Coges, which are far away from Caracas? So that's the kind of situation I have to talk, I have to talk about what's it's getting better because we have the compromise to say the truth every time. And when we check, we check a kind of weird indicator, which is the indicator for a drug supply. And we have a list of 15 basic drug supplies in emergency room and 15 drug supplies in operator room. And we check that every week. I mean, we can, we can say we, we have morphine or we don't have morphine. Uh, we can check if we have antibiotics, simple antibiotics as some pistoling, or we have bicarbonate, or we have adrenaline in the emergency room. We check that every week in every one of the biggest 40 hospitals in Venezuela in 24 states. So when we, 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 we do the math for the every one of the of that medical supplies or drug supplies in the emergency room we have an average of the uh, shortage of those drug supplies the average shortage for the drug supplies in the emergency room when we uh, create that indicator in the, in the last months of 2017 was close to 65 percent it's mean that you get to the emergency room with any disease, there is the probability of 65% that you don't have, you don't have in the emergency room the drug you needed. So you have to buy it, go, your relative or your parent or whoever can go, go to a pharmacy and get the drug and go back to the hospital to give the drug to the doctors. That's what the figures in 2017. In the average shortage in that indicator in 2022 was 52%. I mean, it get better from 2017, which was 65 or so, to 52. But still, 52% or 50% is still is the probability that you get to the emergency room and you have a, a cardiac infarction or you have a, a neurological lictus or you have a pneumonia and you don't have the drugs you needed in the emergency room. So uh, it's getting better, yes, it's getting better a little bit, but still uh, in a very mediocre or poor situation in terms of drug supplies. Also, we measure some other indicators we are very weird. For example, we count the number of dead people associated with the power, block, uh, power lockdown. When we have the power, the power problems, people dies. I mean, a, a person who is in the hospital is sick, but if you are connected to a mechanical ventilator or if you are a newborn and you are in an incubator and you have a, a power problem, maybe your life is in jeopardy. So we count the number of deaf people related or which is coincidental with the power supply, with the problem with the power supply. And uh, in the 2022, we, we have like 1,600 dead people who are related in the power blackout. 
So that's a weird indicator because nobody counts the, the dead people related to power power, power problems, but we, we measure that. And the number has been going down in real terms, more related to the humanitarian help that we we the we 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 call in 20 2020 and 2021 most of the emergency emergency electrical plants were donated related to the international lobby that the humanitarian group did with the international agencies we told that numbers and they said well we can send them we can send to venezuela emergency electrical plants so they installed in most of the hospital and that electrical plants are working right now but that electrical plants just work when you have an electrical huge problem but they are not for running the whole year so that's electrical emergency plan has been very helpful in terms of uh, the that uh, indicator but we have to underline that those electrical plants was donated by international uh, international groups like the International Red Cross or PAHO or UNICEF or some government like the German government or other government who have been helping in the uh, in the emergency, the health emergency in Venezuela. However, some minimal improvements are also reflected, such as the increase in supplies or the amount of health workers, for example. In your opinion, what do you think these improvements are due to? Are investments currently being made in the health systems? Do you think these improvements can increase over time? As I, as I told you, Melanio and Miguel, uh, we have some improvements, for sure. I mean, there is no doubt of that. The problem is that those improvements are not related with a, a political decision to really improve our hospital. What I mean with that is that the national government do not have a national policy that they uh, are clear to improve the drug supplies or they have a logistic approach to uh, send the supplies to the national hospitals. Most of those supplies, I have to tell you, is related to the emergency, international emergency kits. This is a, a, a kits we are uh, conceived for international help and they have a kind of medical supplies that uh, can solve some of the basic problems. And also related to the international lobby, related to the humanitarian team and the interaction with international agencies, like 2000 emergency, international emergency kit has been deployed to some of the hospital in Venezuela. Some of the, of the, of the numbers that we have been getting better related to the drug supplies are related to those emergency kits and some of the some drug supply that have been getting better in the hospital, but still close to 50%. So I don't think I'm not optimistic that um, that kind of uh, improvement is gonna get better, and we are gonna. I, I don't think we are going to zero uh, 
shortage of drug supplies in emergency room. I mean, we are stable, close to 50%, and actually it could uh, get worse because uh, Venezuela has in the eye of the storm or in the eye of the news two or three years ago, but now is Syria. And most of the donation programs related to international agencies are getting um, are getting worse or are getting less funded. So I can foresee that maybe that numbers are getting are getting worse in the next months or years. Julio, this month marks two years since the first COVID-19 patient was diagnosed in Venezuela. In the Doctors for Health report, it's stated that the number of deaths due to the pandemic is four to five times higher than what is published and accepted by the regime. If we had to assess how the pandemic was handled in the country and the specific consequence for the Venezuelans, what would your opinion be? Related to the COVID-19 answer, that question maybe is one of the most difficult questions that I have to ask or answer related to, to any question in, in recent years in Venezuela. I mean, we have to take in count several uh, circumstances that uh, can modify the judge that we do about the COVID-19, especially when we are talking about governance and government decisions related to the COVID-19. The first one is that the COVID-19 uh, virus came to Venezuela in the middle of the uh, humanitarian emergence. The second problem is that uh, COVID-19 came also to Venezuela in the middle of a huge shortage of uh, gasoline and um, combustible uh, in Venezuela uh, at that time. In 2020, we were in a very, very deep uh, shortage of uh, fuel all over Venezuela, which means that for a regular Venezuelan, it was very difficult to move even to work, even to move to the daily work. As a physician, sometimes in, at that time, I have to walk to my hospital or I have to uh, get my bicycle to go to the hospital because I have no fewer amount of physicians. So can you imagine a person who is not physician? I mean, most of the people even work at home and it, it wasn't related to the COVID-19. It was related to the shortage of fuel. That shortage of, of fuel, we already published a paper, a scientific paper. It's a mathematical model that we that we did at that time, uh, trying to find out which of these factors uh, were more related to the scarcity of number of cases that we have at the beginning of the epidemic related, for example, with Colombia or Ecuador or Peru. Other, other situation that affects the COVID-19 spread in Venezuela was the fact that in Venezuela, at that time, we just have like four or five international flights a week. If you compare that to Panama or to Bogota, it was related maybe 75 or 80 international flights a week in Panama or 200 international flights in Bogota compared to Venezuela international flights. Uh, we have a kind of a corralito, we say in, in Latin America, we have a kind of a, a natural isolation 
related to the international flights that maybe brings less COVID-19 cases at the first wave of uh, COVID-19. After that, the situation uh, tends to equalize with the rest of Latin America because once you have the virus inside the country, it spread uh, very quickly. And also with supposedly or national borders close to Colombia and close to Brazil, people go uh, from Venezuela to Colombia or Colombia to Venezuela using non-regular uh, non-regular uh, uh, ways to, to, to cross the border and that uh, in some way affects the COVID-19 situation. Uh, the other problem is that the government has a very, very, very strict uh, policy related to any declaration with medical personnel or private or public related to the COVID-19 numbers. So I have been, uh, I have been uh, named by Maduro, and I have been named by Jorge Rodriguez and also by Diosdado Cabello in national television uh, because I was named as a, a doctor who is terrifying Venezuelans related to the numbers uh, of COVID-19 in Venezuela. So uh, in some way I, wa I was, I, I, I has been political harassed uh, related to the uh, national figures in Venezuela related to the numbers. After that, it was very difficult for any doctor, any nurse, or any practitioner to say anything about cases in Venezuela. And in some way, there is a kind of uh, darkness related to the real information. That's the reason why National Survey for COVID-19 counts the number of deaths related to a respiratory failure. Most of the cases, we, we are sure of that, were COVID cases, but for government purposes, the only accepted deaths uh, with COVID-19 were those who have PCR positive. And 80% of the cases which were admitted at any point of the epidemic, 80% do not have PCR. So most of the, of the death cases in Venezuela were not cataloged as a COVID uh, death because they do not have PCR, which is absolutely ridiculous. But we count that kind of death, and uh, that's the figure you already named, that have four or five times the official number of death in Venezuela. Other than that, I think that um, Venezuela has a um, very early uh, and, and severe lockdown because the, we have the lockdown March 13, 2020, when we have no case, two cases of COVID-19 in Venezuela. And we have in a strict lockdown for maybe four or five months. In Venezuela, in some way, uh, the decision for uh, clearing up the lockdown or installing the lockdown were more political decisions and not epidemiological decisions. At some point, for example, they cleared the lockdown rules related to uh, National Assembly elections uh, in December 2020. So in some way, uh, they were more strict with the lockdown rules and sometimes they were less strict, but more related to political 
points and no to epidemiological uh, data. Now, it also seems important to me that in recent years there has been an increase in the spread of certain diseases such as dysphoria and tuberculosis. There has been increasing alerts and there seem to be more and more cases. What is the reason for this? How can it be prevented? And what is the current situation regarding vaccination programs? Well, Melania, yes, indeed. Uh, the sensation you have that uh, all uh, diseases have been re-emerged is actually a fact. For example, I have to say we have uh, an outbreak of diphtheria four years ago. Actually, now we have uh, now another outbreak of diphtheria. We have an outbreak of measles, measles uh, five years ago also and four years ago. We, we have a double outbreak in four years ago, diphtheria and measles. We also have uh, the biggest number in malaria cases all over the world related to the population of Venezuela. The last number we have it is close to 200,000 cases of malaria in Venezuela. And Venezuela used to have nine, nine uh, to 2,000 cases, uh, 2,000 cases in the 90s, in 2020. Now we have 200,000 cases for a year. So uh, you can imagine how big is that? What's the reason that for that? Well, I mean, we cannot uh, explain all the diseases with the same reason. For the diseases that are controlled by vaccine, for example, diphtheria, measles, the only reason for that um, diseases to reemerge are the lack of vaccination that we have been dealing with in the last 10 years. The numbers in terms of coverage of the vaccines in uh, Venezuela related to the other Latin American countries is the weakest coverage data. I mean, the, for example, for missiles, uh, the coverage is around 50%, so mostly 60%, which is the worst numbers in, in all Latin American countries. So that's the reason why some of the vaccines, preventable diseases uh, are re-emerging. But for, for example, for malaria, where we don't have a vaccine for malaria uh, so far, but for malaria is the lack of programs or funding to uh, fight those diseases. It's the same for Zika, Dengue, and Chikungunya. The vector, dis vector diseases need uh, to be controlled and need to be funded and need to have uh, people who are dedicated to fight those diseases. So at the end, if you don't uh, invest uh, in control related to that disease, that disease is still or reemerge. We have another uh, problems like the HIV cases. We have other problems like, like tuberculosis cases. We are pre-related pre each other, tuberculosis and HIV. And it's more related to the lack of programs uh, that tend to control that uh, transmitted disease. Uh, for that diseases, in terms of control, you need to identify the cases very early, treat them, 
isolate in the case you need to isolate and uh, try to cut the change of transmission uh, of that diseases. And that's that we are not doing right now because we don't have um, solid programs that um, try to interrupt the transmission chain for that diseases. So for some diseases, there are some reasons, for other diseases are other reasons, but at the end, the common, uh, the common cause of that diseases to emerge is a weak government, a weak health system, and a weak um, capacity to uh, deliver uh, health equity for the Venezuelans. So at the end, I think that uh, the situation, the health situation in Venezuela is the final uh, result of a way to see politics. It's a, uh, a way to see or how to you deal with the health governance. And until you change that radically, we are going to have the same results. So I think that unless we change very aggressively the way we we are dealing with health issues in Venezuela, we are going to have bad uh, results or bad indicators. And to conclude, can you share with us what's the medium and long-term outlook for the health situation in the country if there's no change in how the public policies are designed and implemented in Venezuela? I think, as you can assume or you can understand right now, related with this analysis, that uh, uh, this uh, huge crisis is more related to the way the political uh, health uh, is done in Venezuela. It's not related with any disease. It's not related with any war. In Venezuela, there is no war. I mean, no no actual war. We we don't we don't have had. Uh, national disaster we don't have uh, earthquakes we don't have uh, hurricanes in, in, in the whole country but the numbers or the indicators in national health indicators that we have in venezuela is like we have a huge impact in terms of uh, national health and is more related the way the politics uh, involves the health uh, system and until we change the way we manage that, I think I'm not optimistic. I think a uh, health system is gonna be more uh, deeply affected by the government rules or the decision or the lack of funding because there is a lot of um, issues related with the funding and, and not related with the sanctions. I mean, the Venezuela, according to the United Nations data, is a less funded health system in all Latin America. For example, Argentina spends like 12% of the GDP in health, in, in public health. Venezuela spends just 4%. So there is a, a, a huge uh, barrier to uh, to get into the uh, the national funding uh, on even although the government used to talk about the the they are in the, the they are investing a lot of money in um, in the health system but when you check the international data 
is not in that way. The other, the other thing that I have to, to conclude with this is that in Venezuela, the health system has been one of the biggest uh, areas of corruption uh, related to the government. In Venezuela, have been spending thousand billions of dollars related to the supposedly uh, invested in hospital or drug supplies in Venezuela. But that is not uh, what you see when you go into the hospital. You just need to check the National Survey Hospital and you are going to have the data. So uh, at the end, there is a lot of factors that influence negatively uh, about the health uh, data or the health issues in Venezuela. And I think that until we have a huge or a radical change in the way that the health system is managed, we are going to have the same situation that we have right now or even worse. Well, Julio, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been an honor to have you here. I also want to mention that people can follow you on your social media accounts, such as Julio Castro M to find more information about the situation and the National Hospital Survey. Is that correct? Well, guys, uh, thank you for the invitation. I'm sorry for my English for uh, not so be so cl clear or so academic, but I think that uh, trying to deliver information to the international community related to the situation in Venezuela and the actual situation is very helpful for me and for, for everyone uh, in Venezuela. I have to give my thanks related to the, my, the NGO, uh, Médicos por la Salud, and the Encuesta Nacional de Hospitales, which are very proud to be in your podcast uh, with me as a, as a speaker. And uh, I hope we can be with you guys with better news very soon. Uh, uh, we need you. We need you very much. And well, I have to congrats you guys for this initiative of delivering information related to the Venezuela uh, in those fields. Thank you. And we still in touch. Julio, thanks for all your work as a doctor and as a spokesperson for the health crisis that the country is currently facing. Without a doubt, we will love to have you here at some point to go deeper into the health situation in the country. Thanks everyone for tuning in and we will be back again in two weeks with another episode of Venezuela 101. This was a new episode of Venezuela 101. If you like this podcast, share it. Spread the word with your colleagues, family, and friends. Follow us on our social media at Miguel underscore Pizarro at Melanivar. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a comment. Please tune in again in two weeks with new guests on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor FM, and YouTube.